all of us here, we exist outside the matrix. So we see the reality. They're living behind this sheen. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited, as we always are, because we are a very enthusiastic sociologist, Tiso and I, if you didn't already know. But today we are exceptionally excited to have on the show Gurpreet Sidhu, who is the founder of Black Lives Matter in the Sticks. Sticks spelled S-T-I-X. And this is an anti-racist, community-based, grassroots organisation that is looking to implement anti-racist praxis across rural and suburban locations within the UK. And Tiso and I are absolutely honoured to have joined the expert panel for this organisation and also just in general join this organisation. If you listen to the podcast already, you'll know that these issues are something that are very, very close to mine and Tiso's heart, having both of us grown up in predominantly white spaces. We're so grateful that you've come on, Gurpri. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really, really <laughs> happy to be here. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to tell the listeners where did in the sticks BLM in the sticks start? Yeah, it was accidental, <laughs> <laughs> like all the best social media. Yeah. It was a big accident. So, I live in Essex outside of Colchester in a place called Wivenhoe, and I moved here about four years ago. And I've grown up in rural areas. I spent a lot of my time moving around England because my dad was in the Royal Air Force. And then I moved to Scotland, to Fife, and lived there when I went to secondary school. So I've experienced a lot of rural racism in my life. And actually, I found when I moved to cities in my 20s and my 30s and sort of set, started my career, I sort of felt at, more at home there than I had done anywhere else. And then when I moved out here to Wivenhoe, it's a great community it's a beautiful place. It's really idyllic. I've had some racist incidents here. And then what happened was this summer with lockdown and with the tragic killing of George Floyd, Black Lives Matter became, got reignited, didn't it, globally. And for me, something profound happened after that event. I, like many other people who've been experiencing racism and living in rural areas as well, have been filing away racist incidents in my head for a really long time because when you're living in a society where it's not recognised and microaggressions aren't recognised, let alone overt racism. I had a moment where that box just exploded in my head and I just was just enraged with the fact that I had to live this way, that anyone had to live this way. And for me, it was a real awakening. It was like, I don't want to just be not racist anymore. I want to do something. I want this world to be better. Now, obviously, being you know an Indian woman, who has suffered racism, like I've got lived experience of racism, but I can't say I was an anti-racist before. I I would challenge racism. I wouldn't accept it. You know, it very rarely happened 
around me to other people because you know it usually happens when you're on your own I had a couple of occasions actually in London on the tube where it would happen and I'd call it out I just decided I didn't I wanted to be an anti-racist and that led to a whole load of um, steps that have led me to this point today just four months later <laughs> When we saw the kind of images of George Floyd and the aftermath, the whole narrative is pictured in urban spaces. It's almost an afterthought. Most people don't really think of racism happening outside cities. The narrative that is continued, especially pervaded in, through hegemony on the, in the media, is racism is an urban problem. Mm. But we know this is it's not true. Right? It's a societal problem. And this is why, T, just following on from your point... <laughs> Sometimes, although we recognise on this podcast that identifying and talking about microaggressions don't doesn't necessarily redress issues of systemic racism, that's a fact. However, if we do not account for what happens in these predominantly white spaces, in the English countryside and in suburbia, if we don't account for what happens to people of colour and black people in these spaces then we aren't taking everyone with us. And I think that sometimes this is a bit of a gap within our anti-racist collectives, our broad coalitions, is that people don't necessarily always want to talk about interpersonal incidents of racism because they don't feel like it can have an impact on societal change. I believe that you can do both. And that's why I was so, I'm so inspired by what you're doing, Gurpreet, because organisations like Black Lives Matter in the sticks, BLM in the sticks, represent how you do need to change the hearts and minds of people that aren't inclined to see anti-racism as something that should be a priority. And in doing that, we do have to engage in these discourses of interpersonal racism. I grew up in a very similar way to you, Gepri. Like I have been around white populations in suburban or rural locations for most of my life, or most of my childhood, and then most of my adult life so far. I've lived in a city now for five years. This is very much a subject which is very close to my heart, and I feel like it is a gap within our anti-racist movements as well. I've got another angle of looking at it, actually, that I think is really interesting, because, you know, obviously you're talking about not taking everyone with you. I actually feel really strongly, and what I've seen the gap being, is that actually if people of colour, and I, I use that term because it's easy to use when having conversations, and that's going to be a job for you guys when we are on the panel about what, what language we use. <laughs> <laughs> for me actually the key thing is is that you know people of color cannot change systemic racism if we could we would have done it already right because the passion and the heart is there to get it done so the only way we're going to do it is if white people do it as well you know we're missing that opportunity and the majority of white people are not racist those people who are not racist if we can encourage them to become anti-racist to, to first of all become aware of what anti-racism is opposed to not being racist and then help them understand some of the actions they could take to become anti-racist then we'd be on our way to really making a big shift wouldn't we um and in rural areas, the majority population is white. In terms of locally, what's happened here and how we st the story of who we are and what happened. I wrote a letter to our local MP about you know systemic racism in the UK. I published it on Facebook and asked people if they wanted a copy of it. That started a discussion on our local forum 
about racism. And what happened was lots and lots of people got in touch with me directly saying, oh my God, I had no idea there was racism here. And for me, that was a massive learning point because I assume, as I think most people of color do, that racism is everywhere. I hadn't realized that so many white people didn't know that. And that's a really key point, because if there's lots and lots of white people living in this country who don't know that racism is on their doorsteps and don't know what to do about that, if we can kind of wake them up to the fact that it is there, it is happening and there is something they can do, then you've got a potential for a big sea change. Now, obviously, you can argue about why people didn't realise that, what that's about, you know, is it is it a kind of collective amnesia <laughs> is it is it not wanting to make the place that they live in sound less idyllic you know what is that about but I think the important thing is is that people's hearts are in the right place they're just not aware that there's something they could do about it so that was a really interesting learning point and, and, and an important part of the journey the challenge to convince people to win hearts and minds is a different task than me writing about structural or theoretical change right how do i get this message across to people try to convince people in everyday language to say that listen you have skill in the game this affects you also when i look back at the kind of the abolitionist movement and all this kind of stuff how they kind of translated theory into kind of again they were, they were problematic but into everyday sayings that catch the hearts and minds is an important part of that task in dealing with the interpersonal racism that we encounter and we look to get rid of. Mm. It's, it's like I said to you, it's a very difficult task when I, and I sit there and I think about it and I think, I know what I want to say, but how do I make Dave down the road understand in ABC fashion? Is that possible? I think as well, it's really important to caveat this conversation. We recognise that it isn't up to all people of colour and black people to conduct this work. It's really important that we recognise and put name to that because there are obviously lots of people of colour and black people across the UK that are fed up of talking about racism and that are fed up with spelling things out. And it's really interesting your point that that realisation you had, Gurpreet, that um, white people didn't realise that there was racism within your area. Now, thinking a little bit about scholarship that Tiso and I enjoy reading um, and someone we've had on the podcast, Alana Lentin talks about this and we can talk about there being a, an amnesia, but there also has to be a recognition that they do know what's happening, but they haven't really wanted to change that. And that's because there is a, the voice says there is a wage to whiteness, no matter what class you are, there is a wage to whiteness. And there is a, there's processes of automatic belonging that are disproportionately given to white people within predominantly white places. And I use, um, that's Les back there, big up Les back. Um, what's really important about this is recognising that we are a broad coalition of anti-racist movements, but Patiso and I joining you on this stuff is recognising that we want to play our part in redressing rural and suburban racism because we believe what you're doing is part of the parcel. It has to be part of the parcel because... Even though, like for me personally, I've got so many personally violent incidences that have happened to me within these places and so have people that I've worked with sociologically within my research, we still need more of them to come along with us on this. We still need more of them. We need to raise awareness because, you know, rural racism is continually downplayed, denied, 
diminished. And when I say that, you know, by downplayed, I, I had an incident here in the pub where someone said to me, you know, why don't you go back to where you came from? This caused a massive stir in the local community when I told shared this story in the media. I had people texting me going, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened to you. That's awful. And I was thinking, that's not the worst thing that's happened. Like, you know, I was surprised <laughs> at the level of worry that that generated because I was like, that's really low level for me. But what's interesting is, is that I had a friend who told that story before I'd shared it on the media. Before this happened, I told her about this racist incident. I'd actually forgotten about it because that's what you do. You file this stuff away and you forget about it. And we were having a conversation one day and I said to her, I've not had any racism in this village. And she was like, yeah, you did. You had that incident in the pub, which I'd forgotten about. And she reminded me. And then she said to me, I actually told a few of my friends about that incident and they said there's no way that happened. And at the time, I didn't really take it in. But now that I'm running this campaign, you know, it was like, again, direct evidence that people even when being told something by a trusted friend, and these are people who are not racist, mm. actually said, nah, that didn't happen in our village. Mm. Now, there's some education that can be done around that. People don't realise they're behaving in these ways that are actually diminishing and denying racism that actually have a really big detrimental impact. So if we can create a platform where we can share that, encourage people to open that up and look at it and realize the kind of the very common patterns of behavior and communication that they have that make it harder for racism to be talked about in rural areas then we start to open that box up and I don't want to be sort of going around the country telling people what they should and shouldn't be doing I really just want to alert people to the fact that it exists that it's real that downplaying it and denying it does nothing to further the cause. And if actually what you care about is everyone having equal rights in society, don't engage in behaviours that make it harder for those people to be recognised and supported. And that's kind of where we're sort of trying to take it. I'm still figuring it out. We're, we're still figuring it out. And I think messaging is going to be really important in terms of how we communicate this. And it would be great, actually, to have your expertise on that, because you've looked at that in the past. You've looked at what's worked. But I think, like you say, it's a very particular audience we're talking to. Yeah, it's going to be challenging, for sure. The people that we're speaking to or that we're looking to reach is developing what Bell Hooks calls the, the critical gaze. I think they see society with, with almost like a, a sheen, whereas when you experience racism, all of us here, we exist outside the matrix. So we see the reality. They're living behind this sheen. And I'm trying to get my friends, when I'm talking to them on a more kind of interpersonal level, on a day-to-day level, first of all, some empathy. And that's what I'm, Chantel's told me loads about that, a bit of empathy. This is what's needed to be a, a decent human being, I think. I think as well, one of the difficulties we want to embrace and think about together is how you don't make the, the messaging and the way you engage with these populations about respectability politics. You don't make it about not being racist. You make it, as you say, Gurpreet, about being anti-racist. It is really difficult to not separate the interpersonal from the structural conditions of racism. What I mean by that is one way I've been thinking about is how we talk about racism that happens in schools and particularly in these rural locations when you've got one child of colour that's in a, that's in a classroom, for example, and they experience racism. 
like the long-term effect of being sort of hyper-visible whilst also being hyper-visible from such a young age and going through your life in this place where you're you're an outsider that, that's in, like the long-term impact of that stuff. I mean, there's been plenty of work that's happened on it, mm. but it's one of the things that I think about a lot now, and particularly as you're seeing more black people and people of colour talking about moving um, outside of cities, outside of um, multicultural, multi-ethnic um, locations. It's, I, I think about this almost on a day-to-day basis now, like what is happening in these rural places that they're moving to or the suburban context they're moving to to be ready for this demographic change. And that's not to sort of romanticise this moment. People have been living in these places that are not white for a long time. I just want to make that clear. But from my experience in these places, they're not ready. They're not ready for this. (laughs) I feel like there is a slight, and this is anecdotal, a naivety amongst some people that are moving from cities into these places, particularly about the romanticisation of having physical space. And I, I, I feel bad about using the romanticization of physical space because everyone should have, it should be a human right to have access to physical space. But the cost, the cost to that physical space, particularly for young children, I think in these locations is massive. I find it really hard to put into words how strongly I feel about this because I have the lived experience. I've done done research and read about how hard it can be for families in these places and yeah and and I think that what you're doing Gopri is one of the really important ways that we will try and our best to make these places better for Mm. families that are coming into them that are going to be seen as hyper visible that are going to be racialized. Villages and rural areas have got a hell of a lot of community spirit there's a lot of really great community stuff that goes on in these spaces right much more so than in cities sometimes if you're looking at a location and a geographical community and obviously when people move out of the city what they do lose is their community in terms of their ethnicity and their background and you know and it's one of the reasons in rural areas racism can hit harder and can cause so many more issues because when you suffer a racist incident you don't have any community to fall back on to talk to about it to support you through it you end up being more and more in isolation people withdraw from community life but like I was saying there's already the potential for a really great mixed community because there is a community spirit that goes on in these areas so I think it's about trying to encourage these areas where I do believe the majority are not racist to understand the impact of being anti-racist. Because if you are anti-racist, then those people who are racist are in the minority. And that's what you want. You just want, all all we're aiming for is for the people who are racist to pipe down, to know know it's not welcome, that it's not acceptable, that they can't act that way in public spaces, that it's not going to be, no one's going to turn a blind eye to it. And that, I think, is a big shift we can make. We can never eradicate those people or stop them from thinking the way they think, not through a campaign anyway. You know, for those people to change their attitudes, they need something very profound to happen on a personal level. But hopefully with a social media campaign, we can wake people up to the fact that they just need to take a tiny step away from where they are because they already hold the right beliefs, I believe. So we're not asking them to change a belief system we're just getting them to acknowledge that they need a shift in perception and we're going to try and 
shift that perception for them. And that perception is that where they live, there is no racism. It's all hunky-dory. People don't suffer. And that's quite an easy thing to dispel, isn't it, as a myth? You can do it. So I'm really hopeful that we can kind of, yeah, win hearts and minds, as we've been talking about. <laughs> no, I, I think, like, from my experience, when I moved to, again, it's anecdotal, it's moving to a, a small town outside in East Lothian called Preston Pans. First thing you encounter is a small town mentality. Like, they don't like outsiders, right? Because you're different. It's a shock. But for me, it's not a thing. I'm quite resilient, so you, I understand how to navigate that. For a small town, not just looking at me, anyone, anyone who's outside that little bubble is considered an outsider. It's a difficult mentality to, to kind of shift. When I went there I, and started speaking to people, I would find that they're kind of deep in other traditions that are quite, they almost seem outside that bubble quite backwards. They were very sectarian. It's a very strange mixture and... It almost, if I were to kind of put a, a kind of phrase to it, they were like living in the 1970s. It was insane. And so when you're coming in there and you're coming from the, to kind of put a phrase, we're coming from the 21st century into an area where people think like the 1970s, it's, it's insane. How do I normalise, kind of chat to these people? Because we're coming from like two different worlds. They don't really, they don't travel outside. They don't really expose themselves to other people. They're very, very insular. This is why I'm quite intrigued in this whole kind of thing, this whole dynamic. When you're reaching these people, how do I start telling these people now to be anti-racist? Because up until now, your experiences, your whole thing informs you not to, not even to even consider an alternative proposition. That's the starting point, right? This is really interesting. And it opens up a whole, a few things actually that I think are really important. Like what happened here... And one of the reasons we, we started off the campaign was because locally we set up a local BLM group. Someone made me a founder. We decided to hold a protest. That protest, I decided to turn it into a visual event. And then we wanted people to kind of all around the country in rural areas to protest. And that's what looked, kicked off the whole campaign, right? Um, but locally, when we started up our local group, all the white people, who is the majority, you know, 97% of the people in the group were white, were asking the black people in the group to tell them what to do. And I had to make a choice really quickly about how that was going to go. And I ended up having to say to the white people, because I did, I did consult with the black people in the group. There's only a few of them. And they either didn't want to put their head above the parapet and be the ones who were, you know, being singled out in the community, or they didn't want to invest a lot of time in something that they thought was just white saviors coming on board, disappearing very shortly and being left with the work of this group. I had to turn around to all these white people and say, actually, you're here because you think racism is wrong. What do you want to do? So when you say that to me, Tissa, like, how do I go out and have these conversations? I think this campaign is actually not about us going out and having these conversations. It's actually about reaching white people who are already not racist and getting that light switch where they go, okay, I'm not racist, but I actually have to do more. And how? And, th and them going out and converting their friends, their family, the people in their area, speaking up about racism when they see it and, and really educating themselves as well, which is why I feel like we can't be too prescriptive about these are all the things you should do. Like, I think we need to give people a range of things they can do. But actually, it's going to be on a personal level. And I also strongly believe that people will do something 
if they enjoy it. Some mm. people enjoy fighting with other people <laughs> and challenging those, you know, they love it. They get a kick out of it. I don't. Some mm. people love baking. Some mm. people love, you know, doing door-to-door knocking. And here we've seen loads of people sort of pick up different activities based on what they feel comfortable doing. And yeah. In terms of anti-racism work, it's not just about challenging racism. It's also in rural areas very much about bigging up BME groups in your area. So Mm. I think for us, one of the activities that I really want to heavily promote is for people, you know, maybe they don't have the confidence to go out and talk about racism. I certainly don't. I'm still finding my way. You know, it's a difficult subject. They don't have that confidence. They can bake some cakes and raise some money and go volunteer for a local BME group. Just by doing that, they're being anti-racist. They're supporting that group to have more of a voice locally. Because that's what the research shows, as I'm sure you know, Chantal, that you know, BME groups in rural areas are right at the bottom of the food chain in terms of any funding. And they never get beyond the point of just organising their own social activities, let alone having a voice in their area. And if we could boost that, that would be a big step. Definitely. One of the things that's coming through my head, and I know it will be going through the head of a couple of our listeners as well, so I want to make sure I address it, is how do we, with this type of work, how do we translate it in a way that considers the systemic and structural nature of racism in a moment when we've got, in the UK context, when we've got a particularly right-wing government, we've got mass inequalities with regards to who is getting infected and who is dying of COVID-19. We've got a global climate crisis that's impacting the global south more than anywhere in the UK because of global north extraction, pollution, climate change is racist. All these sort of big, big things I know we can't do all of them and I know we, we change in hearts and minds does have to come through community and interpersonal. But how do we connect this stuff to the wider systemic nature of racism? I'm also thinking about borders as well. I'm also thinking about immigration. I'm thinking about deportation, all these things that we talk about on the show. Like, how can we make those connections within a campaign like this and within these rural contexts so to me that's something that has to be incorporated in this stuff but how feasible is it okay so I see it as like a domino effect we're trying to light a spark in people I'm then hoping they will go on to look at all these issues as they go on their anti because anti-racism is a journey right it's a learning curve And if we have enough people taking that road, then hopefully they'll be looking at these issues and be getting involved and helping with them. I think we have to try and have a very clear purpose that's, you know, there's a target we want to hit and we need to really try and hit that target well. And I think that's the important bit for us to do. And then we want to encourage people and give them the knowledge and the, you know, or or put them on the right path to be able to work all that stuff out because... You know, each person is capable of so much, aren't they? I believe in that. I believe in the power of the individual to make a change, a positive impact on their community. And I think, you know, if we're waking up 10 people, 20 people, 100 people, 200 people, 1,000 people, you know, they're going to go on to influence other people. And that's when you start to see a real change. Love that, Gertrude. Lovely, <laughs> positive, powerful. hopeful, powerful. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You have to take people with you, don't you? Like... If I'm thinking about 
all this systemic structural stuff, then I need to be providing the expert panel and the groups with what like what to read. And that's sort of, yeah, and it, there is a domino effect. You're right, you're right. I think it's because I'm feeling it, there's so much crisis going on, isn't there? It's almost like even someone like me, I think I'm quite a hopeful person, but I feel like I, even like basic things like that, I feel like I've, I've lost like uh, my direction on it. But only, but that's why it's so important to have people like you on the show, but to to bring us back to what are the practical ways of implementing and changing people's minds. Yeah, and the campaign's got two arms as well. You know, the, and it's because of my background is in working in the charity sector and fundraising and organisational development, like where my heart is and what I know is capacity building. And, you know, the two arms is that we want to create a national campaign. And I'm thinking media campaign. You know, we want to get some celebrities on board. We want to get a message out there that hits everyone because the press are interested. The press like it. You know, they can see that it's unique. They can see there's a gap. So we've got that wind behind us. And then on the other side, what we need to do, what what has come up is that there are people all over the country doing activities, wanting support. You know, I've been consulting with them over the last couple of months and they feel very isolated. They're worn out. You know, they're working on this because they woke up to it themselves or however they got there. And they need resources and help. So, you know, we're providing them with a network, which hopefully, you know, we can get funding in to kind of provide them with training and support, use the kind of expertise that people like you have got to share with them, you know, and what we want to do is make sure that people around the country, so it turns into a properly more more organised movement and not all repeating the same mistakes, you know, starting from scratch. We want to kind of not reinvent the wheel. We don't want to duplicate where we don't need to. And there's already so much going on. There's already so much expertise. But just by linking them up, we're going to start to see quite a lot of shifts and changes. And we've put out some anti-racism leaflets. We've had two regions now convert them into their own local literature and been putting them out there. We had a woman down in Cornwall who uh, decided to do this rambling for racism walk so she walked across Devon basically giving out literature about racism and talking to everyone that she met and this is just the tip of the iceberg and we've not had much capacity so these stories I think are really important because they they start to show what's possible and that's why I'm not too concerned with what people do because I think actually the campaign has the potential for lots of creativity and people to do what they enjoy which is really important so with this woman she actually created a planning notice it was actually an anti-racism poster, but it looked like a planning notice. So not only did she hand these leaflets out, she put them up in all these notice boards and people read them. But mm. the council actually came along and threatened to sue her. Really? These up, Yeah. And then made her go around and take them all down. But then she actually printed out our leaflets and put them up instead. And... The fact that they did that, she entered into a conversation with them. The council are now talking about their policies locally. It's been in the news. It's It started off the conversation. We've got another situation of a parish council and this amazing case study that was put together. You know, one this, I think she was the mum of one of the children who, although they were teenagers, who basically wanted to do a display in the local, it's like an old phone box that is now out of commission and the town council own it. They wanted to do a display on Black Lives Matter. She started off by sending me reams, and I'm sure she won't mind me saying, reams and reams of town council minutes. 
which I had a look at and I was like, oh, this is too much information. I don't know what we do with this. So, I, you know, I kind of I've got the gist of it. And I went back to her and I said, can you turn this into a case study? Which she then did because she had someone to talk to about it. It's all she needed. She turned it into a case study. One of the children actually did a, a painting for it. This case study is brilliant. It's basically like the kids asked the town council, can we do a display? They said, no, it's too political. They went back and said, okay, can we make it about anti-racism? They said, no, racism doesn't exist here. Then they went back and said, well, isn't it good to highlight it if it doesn't exist? And then they went, no, you're threatening us now. And it just highlights the, the challenges you face in a rural area the thinking that goes on, that case study, we put that out on social media because it was digestible. They've now had um, Wessex Museums offer to do a display for them at one of their museums because we met them through some of the work we were doing. There's a local artist who runs a theatre company who's going to create signs and placards for them. Someone offered their house in the middle of Wiltshire and their <laughs> wall for them to paint a mural on. You know, and obviously we still don't know what's going to actually happen with that town council, but it's it's blown up. It's in the local media. So I'm really excited about what can happen if people get turned on to the idea of being anti-racist and then have a place to go to talk about it and to get help and to come up with ideas that are unique and will challenge the status quo, which is all we want. We want to keep the conversation going. See, this is what I like. Super positive. Super positive. Imagine this is right. Sometimes what I find, I I just were thinking of my own position, what I've said uh, on the podcast thus far, is that sometimes you're thinking... What creeps into the back of my head is cynicism. It's up to other people. I understand that. It's up to white people. But I also understand my reality that I'm in. I know they don't. <laughs> like they, I know that people stop and give up. And my cynicism is comes down to my my personal lived experience, man. And I, I guess it's something I fight myself. The kind of optimism you talk about, Greg Gerprit, just there. It's that's where I want to be, and that's where I am ninety five percent of the time. But five percent of the time. Just like when Black Lives Matter happened, I'm like, what? you're a 95% of the time positive. Well, it depends. I don't know about that. I mean, we're both like, we're both pretty. No, you know like, no Shanta, like, on a real, like, since yeah. meeting you, I'm better. I'm better. Like, before. Uh, <laughs> love. I mean, I'm just on a real. On a real, my experience, my experience will tell me, like, it's, when it comes down to it, the only people that helps us is ourselves right but and 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 even then that's problematic itself what you're saying there makes sense and it makes me hopeful that if you inspire people and i guess there's a russian a russian revolution paper iskra the spark like the spark that's all you need the spark and boom you can change the world this is the conversation is reminding me of the conversation we have with gary young about the pollination in Mm. the uk in particular the pollination of anti-racism and that even though like there's still so long to go, the ideas or the flames have been lit across the UK in a way that we maybe haven't seen. Like, and this is the hopeful Chantel coming out. Like I can bring, I can, I can end on to don't worry. But Gurpreet, talking to people like you and like, where we've got this thing called Slack, a whole network of BLM in the sticks. I'm getting emails every day of people like using BLM in, in the sticks. These are like mainly white people that are just like just doing stuff and organizing. And even if it's little stuff within their local community, it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. If you do something and you feel good and you think you've made a bit of a difference, you're not going to pack up and go home. You're going to carry on. 
are they ready for it not to always make them feel good? I think what we've got is on the network, we've got a mix of people. Some people are new. Some people have been doing this a long time. So there's a lot of expertise there. And we've got people, you know, like we've got the whole sandbatch issue where a group of young women who set up a local protest have been threatened, basically. One particular woman threatened repeatedly by the alt-right in that area. You know, they've been doxxed online, which is when your personal information is released. They've been slagging her off in these groups. They were even posting clan hoods at one point, right? And the police are investigating. They're really, really having a rough time of it. But it's just made them dig their heels in more, you know, that is a collective. A couple of them are not white. One of them is uh, the main group, but they have got other people working with them and they're getting stronger, really, in terms of their resolve. And we've been kind of looking at how we can help them, which I can't say too much about here. That is really, it's a really important point you've made there, Gurpreet. Like, obviously, there's such amazing things that are happening that you're telling us about, but the resistance to these things with anti-racism, right? We are up against the government. We are up against the media. We are up against a very organised, far-right, alt-right within the UK even. Like, these are real threats. They're real fears. But the fact that people are still going, that is very, very inspiring. Being a national thing that has all this sort of on-the-ground work going on, it strengthens us because, you know, we can work in partnership. You know, I really want to work in partnership with Hope Not Hate, who are experts in helping to dismantle the alt-right. They know how to do that, know how to work with them. We're working with Stop Funding Hate. They're on the panel as well, one of the founders of that. And they're doing, they're just about to do some workshops on how to use the media to your benefit and how to kind of apply the tools and tactics that they've been learning. So it's just about having a way of coordinating. You know, our job isn't that difficult. We've just got to tell people that racism exists and it's real in that area and what they can do about it. And then we just need to get these people on the ground working together and try and get resources to them and best practice. I mean, in the short term, I want to kind of wake people up and help who's out. You know, we don't want to, we might be wanting to create more, activists and you know activators as I'm trying starting to call them in my head is which is people who maybe don't want to set up a group or go on a protest but individually want to change the way that they're living their lives and do stuff and I think we could have a big membership of them and get them involved when there's like big pushes or big movements we want help with then we've got the activists who are actually organizing and doing stuff in their communities and we don't want to lose any of them you know so it's about retaining those people when we have someone like yourself come on, it's inspiring. Something can be done and people are doing things. I know people are always doing things, but we don't really hear from these people. So when we hear from people like yourself, I think, yeah, boom. When you turn the TV on, you see Brexit, Boris Johnson, and you see the, the fuckery that goes on. But there's people out there doing stuff to make shit better. That's important to kind of get across, you know? started like co-presenting a little radio show on our local radio (laughs) and I did a shout out the other night to our community because what I've noticed in myself as a change is that I feel safer here now than I've felt anywhere else and the reason I feel safer is for the first time I'm living in a community of people who are white but they understand what racism is we've got hundreds of people in this community who understand what racism is and they are looking out for it 
And I know that if anything happened anywhere, I can talk to these people and they would understand what a microaggression was. They would understand how that has made me feel and what that means. And they'd be up in arms and doing something about it. I've never had that before. Mm -hmm. never had that before because in rural areas that doesn't happen and that's all we're trying to do we're just trying to shift the dynamic in the community to make it zero tolerance in terms of racism which brings me on to my third point in the long term I think what we want to do is try and create some kind of certificate or kite mark to create anti-racist public spaces right because when you think about if you put systemic racism to the side for a minute in terms of work and the NHS government and everything when you're living in a rural area you know racism you face is when you leave your house right you're safe at home you step out the door and it's in public spaces or it's in your job or it's and one thing we can do is try and encourage public spaces to be anti-racist so I'm kind of thinking, you know, the middle of this campaign will be very much about collecting up best practice and then maybe trying to create some kind of kite mark to make it so that hospitality, you know, parks, pubs, restaurants. Zero tolerance on racism. You know, they have a policy on it, zero tolerance, because I've experienced racism. You guys have experienced racism. Have you ever gone up to the proprietor of a place that you've suffered racism in and said someone was just racist to me? No, because it's really hard to name. And I guess... But also you don't know what they're going to do, right? Yeah. And you don't want them to say, oh, you know, whereas actually if you have a place that says racism is not allowed here in any form, I would then go tell them if something happened because I'd feel safe to do so. And I would know that that would be dealt with. And that's kind of where I think we need to get to. And sadly, you know, we shouldn't have to have that. But it could work really well because if we just had a couple of anti-racist towns in this country, that would go a big way to kind of actually showing what we want. And I think we really need to be aspirational in terms of what we're looking for rather than what we don't want. We need to be kind of pushing the bar on what we do want. I think it's brilliant that you feel like that in your town now. I wish I'd had that in my hometown when I was growing up. And I want more people like me that are still in the town that I grew up in to feel like that. But I guess where Tiso and what Tiso and I can bring to the organisation, that awareness and the understanding of racism can transcend or can translate or develop into racial literacy. And racial literacy means really understanding how racism is a system, technology, all this stuff how those incidents within like hospitality or within public transport within the place is bound up with wider histories of the UK. I'm thinking out loud about what our contribution is to this stuff, what we can do to support the organisation and the movement. And I do believe you're right that it's a domino that can be a domino effect. If you've already got people understanding within your local community, Gurpreet, what racism is, and they're learning how to be an anti-racist, then what I feel like these campaigns have maybe not done in the past is extend that. You need to go beyond that. And that's what I think you have the capacity to do with with this organisation and this movement within suburban places. Because we know whether it's within football, even within UK education, we have had in the past campaigns which have looked to address racism within sport, racism within institutions. It's never gone far enough towards the more systemic nature and an understanding 
of where we are as a whole. Yeah, and if you can get the community on board, the rest of it is gets easier because the people that will demand the changes. You know, if you've got individuals going into school going, why is this going on? We don't agree with this. Or actually understanding the the negative nature of some of the messaging that's going on around them and being aware and alert to that, then you're making the job easier because you're kind of, yeah. you know, people are on board already. And it's happening here. You know, I know people who are going out and convincing people, not easily, it's taking time. And they start out having rows, you know, feeling like they're not getting anywhere. But, you know, a few conversations in, they are actually starting to convert people. And if that can happen, if everyone can convert one Brilliant. person, then that's all we need, isn't it? Our campaign slogan is to end rural racism. And people have said to me, media have said to me, how realistic is that? And for me, a measure of that would be sort of being able to get a town to maybe sign up to this eventually. That would be a big indicator. But ultimately, I really, really believe that, and I'm sure you guys have seen this as academics, but you know, you need the foundations in place to build on for a movement yeah. to take hold, right? And for... And even if what we're doing doesn't actually do what we are setting out to do, hopefully someone will come along, look at what we've done and make it better. And we aren't going to get to that point unless we do something. So I feel like whatever we do is going to help make a difference. It might not get us exactly where we want it to. There'll be unexpected outcomes, but it's just starting the ball rolling, isn't it? I'm excited to be part of a movement. <laughs> 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 Um, but... Absolutely. Honestly, I hope you don't mind critical reflections. No. On the move. I am overwhelmingly so inspired by you and what you are doing, uh, particularly during such a difficult moment right now that we're in, difficult period. To meet people like you and to have people like you on the show is it's brilliant. It really, really is. See, what I tell you? Boom. Standard, isn't it? Standing. Oh, guys, it's all love. It's all love here. It's all love. Jeffrey, what would you like our listeners to know about BLM in the Sticks? Well, come and have a look at us. We're on social media at BLM in the Sticks on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Come and join the network. We need people to help each other out and just get advice and support. As you know, Chantelle and Tissot are on there. There's lots of other experts on there too who can hopefully answer questions or any advice or support people want with anything they're doing. If you want to join up, just email us, um, BLM in the sticks with an X at the end at gmail.com. Try and be hopeful. You know, if you're in a city, I hope that you are feeling galvanised by the people around you. And we have tools and resources that you can use if you want to try and work with the white community in your area. I mean, it obviously pertains to rural areas, but there's there's going to be more and more stuff coming out. And if you're in a rural area and, you know, you are sitting at home and wishing that, you know, there was something more you could do, then join up with us. So sick. Join. <laughs> Guys, thank you so, so much for joining us. Gopri, thank you so much. Thank you guys check out BLM in the Stick. Patrons, there's another episode for you on the way. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination 
please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 